And now take your Bibles and turn with me to our Old Testament portion this evening, and that's Exodus chapter 34. And this will be, as I said this morning, the last of this little mini-series concerning God's covenant faithfulness and his people. Uh, back here in the book of Exodus, we've looked now, this will be the fourth installment from chapters 32 through 34. And so uh, we'll end with this wonderful passage concerning Moses and the countenance of his shining face. If it were a Perry Mason episode, it would be the case of the shining face. I don't know if any of you like Perry Mason, but I do. And every once in a while, there's just not anything quite like it at 11.30 at night, but to watch an episode of Perry Mason till midnight 30. And when you're too tired to read and keep anything in your brain, and then you just see Perry Mason solve a mystery, and you know there's still hope. Shining faces. Exodus 34, verse 29. God's inerrant, infallible word. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and we might add again, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever and forever. Father, we thank you for that truth. Men have made great efforts in the history of this world to destroy your Bible. We think of Marcion in those early years after the apostles. And we think of various others. We think of Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of our nation, with his infamous cut and paste schedule, bringing the Bible down to something he thought he could manage. We think of the, we think of the rational, lib, rationalistic liberals of the 19th century. And though while they thought they were helping the church by reducing the scriptures to a man-made book, they were harming. And then others simply say, no God for me and no book for me. But you have preserved it and your church loves it 
and your church heralds it, and we here tonight are glad. Otherwise, how would we know you, the one true God, and your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom is eternal life? We're glad to know your word written because it, it brings us to the knowledge of your word living, even Jesus Christ. We pray thanking you for this and asking you to bless now the reading and the hearing and the preaching for the glory of Christ our Savior. Amen. In the current socio-political culture, it's easy for citizens to be downcast. I don't know if you ever listen to any talk radio. Uh, I do occasionally when I'm in the car and people are calling. What are we going to do? You know, we elect officials and then they, they become, you know, they go to Washington and they just become like everybody else. I don't see any hope. And then the, the pundits on the radio, they say, oh yeah, we can't give up. And then they don't give them any real good reason not to give up. If you listen occasionally to what's going on in this culture, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's even easy for Christians to become a bit despondent. I mean, in the prayer I just prayed, I prayed about the sexual perversion and all the sin against life, all the, the murder of, of children and, the, and the, the disregard that our youthful culture has for the elderly. And on and on we could go with the, with the, the terrible state of the social and political culture in which we live. But then we could turn to the church. Pastor Morris alluded to this this morning with the Ligonier studies that they produce annually. And some of those numbers are frightening. And it's easy for us, unless we're engaging people who are members of other churches and we're befriending them and trying to encourage them and try to instruct them in the way of the truth. Unless we're out in the public sector, it's easy for us to sit in this place under sound preaching week in and week out, wonderful teaching in the Sunday school classes, during the course of the school year in the catechism classes. It's easy for us to lose sight of what the reality of the state of things is out there. I've tried to keep you apprised of this on Wednesday night with those prayer requests from time to time about things going on in our own beloved denomination, the PCA. Some of you will remember that I did a series of sermons a few years back now where I took as a lead the study that was done by Lifeway for a church in Knox County where they studied the Knox County church scene. And out of that I did that topical series of exegetical sermons dealing with whatever happened to Christianity. And I just 
will remind you of one statistic. Evangelicalism was defined to include everything, including mainline denominations, such as the PCUSA and the United Methodist Church and the, and the mainline Lutheran Church and the mainline Episcopal Church. Including those, people who attended church regularly, and they defined regularly one service per month, That ain't regular, folks. But for the number of people attending regularly, less than 19% of the population of Knox County. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound much like, there's much like any kind of Christianity in Knox County. Certainly not anything of a majority. And so we see those stats. We see the Ligonier. We see the life way for Knox County study. And it's easy for us to kind of think, woe is us. But as I said this morning, we need to be reminded often the Lord Jesus Christ promised that the defensive mechanisms of Satan will not prevail. You remember that curious thing Jesus says about the kingdom being taken by force? Now, we're not to well the sword. We're not to will the sword. That's for the civil magistrate. Our sword is the word of the Lord and the power of the spirit. And Jesus says that that's a force that the gates of hell cannot withstand. Now, the fact that the gates of hell seem to be winning suggests to me that the spiritual sword is not being utilized like it once was in our land and like it should be once again. Thus, the prayer I prayed just a few moments ago. But even in our knowing that, it's still easy to kind of get down and out, isn't it? And say, oh my goodness. And we become rather, rather mulish. By that I mean, if you've, if you've been around the agricultural scene and you've seen any old movies, Grapes of Wrath or something like that, and they put the blinders on the mules so that the mules couldn't be distracted by the things over here, the water, the water trough that they might like to veer off to or other mules or whatever. And we tend sometimes to put on, put on those same blinders and we just see what's right here in front of us. And it may be something bad and all of a sudden it's woe is us. It may be us and we say, praise God, I have this oasis. I remember B. Ray Thompson saying that over and over to me. What an oasis this church was to him in those last two years of his life. So it's important for us not to let 
the things of this world, and even the sorry state of church affairs sometimes to wipe the smile from our face and displace the joy of our salvation that's in our heart with sadness and even sometimes cynicism. It's important that we not allow that. And when we do, here's why we did, is because we forget that our sovereign Lord is a covenant faithful God. And if anything, that's what these three chapters, 32, 33, 34, are all about, is God being a covenant-keeping God. And we want to end right here with the way this portion ends, with Moses coming down from the mountain the second time and bringing the tablets back down after the first have been broken and a display of the people's sinfulness. So, four points. This morning, there were two. Tonight, four. That, that averages out to three. So we, Sean and I make our homiletics professors happy one way or the other here tonight. First, presence with God is authentic. Presence with God is authentic. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking to God. The people saw him and they said, whoa, wow, what is this? Presence with God produced an authenticity that was obvious to the people. There's such a thing as talking to God. Now, I realize, as someone who does his pastoral duty, every once in a while I listen to those, those people on television and radio who may be just a little off this way or that way, theologically. Because... They're on, the, they're on the airwaves. People hear them. People ask me questions about them, so I have to listen to them. And I realize people talk about talking with God. God told me this. God told me that. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? But there is a legitimate biblical communing with God, talking with God. Moses, we're told, he had been talking with God. There's such a thing as being with God, being in his presence. God is real and talking with God is real. The primary way that we talk to God is through prayer. That's why the Bible makes much of prayer. That's why our Savior taught us how to pray. He gave us a model. And then... Not only do we read in the, in the gospel accounts that Jesus went into the mountain to pray. Jesus rose early and went to pray. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed. But in some of those instances, we know what he prayed. We saw just last week from John that Jesus offers this quick little prayer in the presence of the people so that they would hear him talking to his father. And it produced a clearer understanding on their part, and in many, it produced faith. So our Lord not only taught us how, modeled it, but then he exemplified it. 
And nowhere is it more clearly exemplified than the high priestly prayer of John 17, and we'll eventually get there. The Bible makes much of prayer. Our Lord taught us how to pray. He, exam- he set the example for us. The, the apostles teach us that we're to pray without ceasing. We have examples in the Apostle Paul this morning. Pastor Morris again. That portion was an example of Paul praying. But then there's the other direction. Because talking with God is not a one-way thing. We don't get to just babble on and on and bore God to death. He talks to us. You say, oh, here we go. Pastor Wilborn's gone charismatic on us. No. The word of God. Do you know that the Bible itself says that this, this book, Genesis through Revelation, is a more sure word. And you and I have all heard somebody say, you know, if God talked to me like he did Moses... Well, he does, only in a more sure fashion. It's, it's inscripturated. That means that it has, been, it has been put there by God, it has been vindicated and authenticated by God, and it is there for the long term. It's not going to change. So God speaks to us through his word. When we read it, when we meditate upon it, one of the images that we get in the prophets of meditating is that image of, of, of the young lion tearing into its prey. That's how we're supposed to meditate on God's word, not tearing the word apart destructively, but, but digging into it, enjoying it. Some of you meditate on your food, biblically speaking. And that doesn't mean you sit there and just with your hands crossed, you look at it and just think how wonderful it is. Oh, it does smell good. But you dig into it. My dad, I used to love watching my dad eat. I hope Sophie can remember. She, she and Kaz are the two oldest, the ones that could remember my daddy the most and I hope they remember how my dad loved to eat he wasn't a sloppy eater don't get me wrong he was a gentleman but he enjoyed food so much because God gave it to him and he lived through the depression he didn't always have food to eat he loved the smell he loved the taste and that's the way we're supposed to be about God's word like the psalmist it should be sweet as honey to our taste Because he's talking to us. The psalmist also said that he he committed God's word to memory. Remember? I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we talk to God in prayer. God talks to us in his word. And that's something of a circular route there. Because as we know his word, then we pray better. Because we're praying his word, we're praying his thoughts, we're praying his ways. There's one other way that we experience the presence of God, 
not just in prayer and the reading and meditating and memorizing of God's word, but in the sacraments. Baptism, yes, the, the initial sacrament, but particularly in the Lord's Supper, the continuing sacrament, where Christ is with us. Though he's in heaven, through the spirit of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ dwells in us richly. And so the presence of Christ is authentic. The presence of God with us and in us is authentic. We could go on and deal with the Holy Spirit because we're told in the New Testament the Spirit of the living God has been given to us and he's not only with us, but he is in us. And he's testifying to our spirits that we're adopted sons. The presence of God in the Christian life is authentic. It's real. It's true. This is not some religious crutch. It's true. He is, remember what the Bible says? That our God is is a true and living God. And we get to enjoy his presence. And nowhere more so than in corporate worship when he gathers with his people. Where two or more are gathered in his name, there he is. It's real. But also notice in this passage, we don't just see that the presence of God with his people is real, it's authentic, but we see that it's authenticated. The countenance of Moses was radically changed. You know what it means there when it says the skin of his face shone? Here's the literal rendering. The skin of his face sent out horns. The skin of his face sent out horns. That's the reason. Any of, I don't know if any of you took, had this, saw this in your art course when you had to take an art course. You know, that, that I had to choose between music appreciation or art appreciation. You know, almost every program in college and university requires one of those. And, and so in art, if you get into the medieval art, you often see this, this portrait, this, this image of Moses portrayed with horns. And that's where they got the idea. You say, okay, I believe you, but... What in the world has that got to do with this? Well, in the Old Testament context, the horns protruding simply meant to communicate rays of reflected luminance. Horns, horns to suggest various things in the Bible. Power. In some cases, but in this case, it's, it's the reflective luminance of God and the authority and power of God. Here's, here's what's going on. Moses is reflecting God and his authority and his power. Now that's going to become evident here in a minute because he's going to speak with authority. And the people are going to listen because he spoke with authority. 
So that's what's going on here. This, this, his face shone with light. His face reflected the very power and authority of God. So there could be no mistake where he'd been, no mistake with whom he had been. This was authenticating Moses to the people. He was God's and he had been with God and he had been so close to God that he was reflecting God. And God still authenticates his people today. Let me just read you a portion in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. Jot that down. You can go read the whole context later. But here's what Paul says. And you show, speaking to the Corinthian church, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Do you know that? Do you understand being a Christian means that you walk around in public like a, like a letter that's unfolded? It's not, it's not folded. It's not put in an envelope. It's open for the public to read. And they're reading the message that's on that letter. I'll say two things. If you don't want somebody to read something bad, you better watch your life. If you want people to read Christ, you better know Christ and you better read about Christ. You better pray to Christ and you better be in the presence of Christ much. If that letter is going to reflect Christ to this world around us. The spirit of the living God writes it on tablets. Now, how do you, what's that? How's that flesh out? Well, here's how it fleshes out. And you've probably already thought of this. Some of you did. Galatians chapter 5. And we read this where Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And it goes through this litany, right? Sexual immorality, etc., etc. And then he says this, but, in verse 22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. That's what an open letter, that's what the, that's what the Christian looks like. That's what an open lettered Christian looks like. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So the world sees us and that's what they see. That's the letter that's being presented. We are living letters because the spirit makes us that way. Third thing I want you to see here, not only that the presence of God is authentic with his people and that the, the presence of God is authenticated in his people to the world around them. But third, the presence with God makes a difference to others. So it's not just that they see it and they recognize, well, they're different somehow, but it makes a difference. In verse 30, in verse 30, when we turn back to our passage in Exodus chapter 34, we read this in verse 30, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. That's a similar 
reaction to the to the people's reaction to God in chapter 20, verse 18. You can go back there and read about it. They had this very same reaction. They were afraid of God. It's the same reaction Moses had to God back in chapter 3, verse 6. Remember the burning bush episode? There in the presence of God and Moses was fearful for his life because he was on holy ground. There's a fear of God's authority that's helpful. There's a fear of God's people that is helpful. There's a reverential awe of God's people that's good for the world around us. I mean, when we speak words seasoned with grace, that's good for the people around us. And you know what? They're not going to like it most of the time. And sometimes they're going to have all sorts of reactions to that. When we're with God, the growth and holiness that we experience will shine in our lives and it'll produce a reaction from the people around us, especially the world. Now, sometimes that's going to be persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Sometimes it's going to be mockery. It'll take on all short sorts of, of, of shapes and fashions and forms, but there will be a response to us as Christians. And I'm not talking about, obviously, from what I've just said, you know, you can get reaction from people by being obnoxious. But that's not what we're to be. You deserve to be persecuted if you're obnoxious. You deserve to be made fun of if you're just a lunatic in the way you present things to people. But if you're living the way Moses came down from that mountain reflecting the glory of God in his very being, then we're going to have their attention, we're going to have their ear, and then we can speak the truth in love to their benefit, God willing. The difference, the difference that it makes in our life will be one of humility. Did you notice what Moses did? Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, well, uh, let me back up. When Moses had finished speaking to the people, he put a veil over his face. It's an act of humility. That's the whole point here is there was humility. He wasn't proud. He wasn't saying, oh, wow. Hey, look in that mirror right there. I am pretty impressive, aren't I? He didn't even know it. Remember what it said? He didn't even know that his face reflected. And when he did, he veiled it as a sign of humility. In the Middle Eastern countries, the veil over faces is still a sign of humility. There's humility. But notice also, there's also a note of authority. Moses spoke with commands. When Moses talked with the people, verse 32, Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near. He commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. You say, well, if I'd been with God, I could do that. Well, I've just said we are with God. Through prayer, through the study of God's word, through meditation, through the sacraments. 
That's the reason that Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, verse 20, after he says that we, the church, are going out under the authority of Jesus Christ. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And so we're to go make disciples, baptize, and what's the last thing it says we're to do? Teaching them all that he has commanded. Oh, that sounds like what Moses is doing there, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, but Moses had been with God, and we are with God too. Right now, right here, we're with God. If we thought about that before we entered this this worship hall, it'd make a difference in the way we entered this worship hall. If we thought about that as we leave, we'd be different as we leave. We'd be like Moses. We'd be humble and we'd speak with authority. We wouldn't cower under all the suggestions of this world. Fourth, presence with God exalts the Savior. Ultimately, that's what this passage should point us to as Christians. Because remember, we've seen this over and over in these three chapters. Moses mediating for the people. Mediating between God and man. Moses is the great prophet. The greater, the greater one is to come, we learn in Deuteronomy 18. The greater one is to come. There's one greater than Moses. One that's able to stand closer to God than Moses did. One who reflects God's presence in his person more than Moses? Yeah. Remember what Hebrews 1 says? That our Lord Jesus Christ is the exact image of God. The exact effulgence. The exact glory of God the Father. Moses was just reflective. Jesus is the exact image. So Moses pointed us to our Savior as mediator. Our Savior as the one who is, who is, who is all glory. And Jesus, remember, the, remember transfiguration? When Jesus, Jesus takes on this countenance. And it made Peter, it made Peter, pardon me for a moment. It made Peter say stupid stuff again. Lord, maybe we should just build some tents on this mountainside and stay here forever. Well, it didn't have the effect on Peter it should have. But it should have a better effect on us, this side of the cross. That our Lord is being pointed toward here in Moses. Who was it that spoke with authority even more authoritatively than Moses did? Well, we could go back to John. And we'll read it again in John again. We've seen it over and over in John, haven't we? That Jesus Christ came and he spoke with an authority. And, and, and what did the writers tell us? He spoke with an authority that no one else had ever experienced. No one else had ever heard a man speak this way before. Why? Well, if Moses came down from the presence of God, a mere man, and he spoke with authority and the people listened, how much more would the Son of Man speak with authority? And he kept saying, I'm just simply saying what the Father and I determined from before the foundations of the earth that I would say on this occasion, and I'm saying it. 
This is God talking to you. And they kept saying, who are you? And he said, I've told you, but let me tell you again. I'm the son of the living God. I have all authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the greater Moses. If Moses spoke God's word with authority, life-changing force as we see here, how much more did the Son of God speak? The book of Hebrews is all about this, isn't it? That Jesus is the greater, the better, the superior, the supreme. He's the better David. He's the better Moses. He's the better Melchizedek. He's the better everything. And so when we read a passage like this, and we think of the skin of Moses' face shining, and that's because he was in the presence of God. How about Jesus Christ, who is God, and who is seated at the right hand of God? All power is invested in him. How much more is he than Moses, Melchizedek, David? Even greater, we're told in Romans 5, than Adam, the first man. Remember, there was a time before the fall that Adam knew no sin. He existed in righteousness and holiness and true knowledge. And Jesus Christ is greater than that. Because Adam was a mere man. Jesus Christ was the God-man. And Jesus Christ never fell. He never sinned. And that's our only hope. The reason John Murray could ride on his deathbed from, from North Dakota back to his dear friend John Murray, that last telegraph that he sent him. And simply said this, the active obedience of Christ, that which Christ has done for us, that perfect righteousness, that perfect keeping of the law, the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. Moses points us there. Jesus makes us different. He's the son, S-U-N, of righteousness, we're told in Malachi. We are as the planets and the stars as we reflect his holiness as the moon and the stars and the other planets reflect the sun. We're reflecting his holiness, his righteousness, his beauty, his glory. We're his beloved in a world of hatred. We're his hope in the world of hopelessness. And we are his and his ours. And all because he stands for us with his Father. Our hope is in Christ alone. Without Christ, there is no hope. That's what this passage is about. Father, thank you for loving us and giving us Scripture. That we might know you, the one true God, and your Son, Jesus Christ. And that we might have eternal life. Because he came to live and die and to be raised for us. And even now he's interceding for us, mediating for us at your right hand that we might be saved completely. Thank you. We love you. We pray too, Father, that if there's any in this building without this Christ who's looking to men instead of to the God-man, that tonight they would see Christ and they would have this this brilliant face to leave this building with, reflecting his wonderful holiness and righteousness. And they'd go out of here 
filled with the Spirit, with love and joy and peace and gentleness and patience and goodness and kindness and all that wonderful work that the Spirit works in us. May it be true of us all. In Christ's name, amen.